Uh, thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks for hosting David's uh, visit with us. It's been a great partnership. Well, last night uh, we talked about the what I call the focusing question for this series, which is what does it mean to be a human being, uh, a sinner, saint or machine? And I said that it's very much the question for our time. I'm not the only person saying this. Uh, some of you would have enjoyed Ian Proven, whom we brought out from Regent College. And um, recently, Ian sent me an email to say exactly that, that this is the question for Christians. This is the number one. And we have to have views, and the views have to be informed and developed. So uh, I think the, this topic is relevant. And the way that we're approaching it, I'm repeating what I said last night, but um, I think it's worthwhile repeating it, is as a developing argument. Five modules, and the five modules are sequenced, and they're sequenced logically. Um, we will unashamedly finish today with the high point, the highest vision for humanity that, that uh, civilization has developed the patristic concept of theosis. Uh, it's so breathtakingly positive and yet so orthodox to Christianity, the phrase in Christ is the most common phrase in the New Testament, that very few people have investigated it and we will investigate it riding on the back of some great minds like Maximus and Gregory of Nyssa. That's how we'll end. In a sense, we began last night at the dark side of the moon which is this growing worldview zeitgeist about the mind being a machine. I don't think anyone quite completely believes it, but it's influencing everybody. I mean, many years ago, I was the Nuremberg Chair of Design at Carnegie Mellon University. Carnegie Mellon University, one of the top universities in America, is one of the homes of artificial intelligence and cognitive science. And I had, was having a conversation with Herb Simon, who was the Nobel Prize winner there, who's since passed away. And with Arthur Newell, they claim to be the first people to have developed a, um, what was then a human reasoning machine. And his words to me is, quote unquote, the mind is a machine. I completely disagreed with him. He's not, he wasn't the kind of dogmatic person who closed down a debate, but it, it's, a, it's something seeping in uh, to the Christian mind. Sorry, not the Christian mind, to the, to the mind of the world. We finished last night with David, I think, taking us on quite a mesmerizing journey to critique the assumptions behind that. And, but we ended on a positive note, what David calls the incommensurable qualities of mind uh, that we cannot actually ever um, reduce and furthermore it went further than that which you know, David I was personally blessed where, where we as it were took off and said not only are our individual qualities of mind incommensurable that we're sharing in the mind of God we didn't invent mind uh, it's something we are participating in uh, in David's words, top-down. Um, and we ended with intent as one of the... Certain, uh, unity of consciousness and intent were two of the big qualities that really by which we seem to be sharing in the mind of God. Now, that leads to this morning's uh, first module, which is, has the church dropped the ball on that? by an overemphasis on the doctrine of original sin. I actually think that's true. I mean, I, I, I feel that the Christian anthropology uh, that I hear most is the first thing we want to tell people is they're sinners. Um, it's not a great starting point for a conversation, but, but the question is, have we overemphasized that? And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, the, uh, the doctrine that became 
uh, in Calvin's hands, uh, total depravity. Now, um, I just want to frame this before we get going with David. Um, and I want to say that th there's no question that there are two major competing streams of thought in the Christian tradition. Uh, no question. And uh, I think it's well summed up. Some of you might know that one of David's heroes, I think, David, you consider Bulkakov, the greatest theologian of the 20th, 21st century. I'm just getting into him, but um, your, pu your pupil, I get, R Roberto Delanova, Delanoval um, wrote, if you want to actually have a go at Bukakov, you could begin with the spiritual diary um, or the essays on the sociology of death. But I just wanted to read you a, just a, a fraction from the what's called the theological introduction. Bukakov had a mesmerizingly positive vision of being made in the image of God. And unlike almost anyone in history, he pursued that. It's quite... It's quite amazing and mind-expanding mind and faith-expanding to read. But in the introduction, they make, uh, the, uh, make this comment, so vaulting an anthropology was destined to draw criticism. How could such an emphasis on humanity's divinity not obscure the doctrine of humanity's sinfulness? Uh, and uh, a colleague of his, a book across uh, Badeyev, if I said that right or wrong, uh, Nicholas Nikolai Badeyev, sums it up by this. He Badeyev puts his finger directly on the question: Is creation or fall, creativity or redemption? the center of gravity for Christian anthropology and for an understanding of Christian mission in the world. Uh, I think that puts it starkly. We don't, and so, so the inquiry that we're set, setting off on is charting a course in that. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention uh, by way of an introduction, which I'd recommend, um, is Karl Barth's short article called The Humanity of God. The title will tell you that's an extraordinary title, The Humanity of God. What's interesting is the most significant reformed theologian in many ways of the 20th century wrote this toward, or it was a speech actually, toward the end of his life. And the first half of the article is an extended mea culpa. We have gone too far on the doctrine of sin and we have diminished the doctrine of being made in the image of God. He goes a lot further than that. So I commend that to you. So um, that's the framework. Um, and I think in order to focus on this today, we'll focus on particularly two competing attitudes to the will, which is where we ended last night. You know, if intention and will is, as it were, you know, the queen of our cognitive faculties. It what draws us closest to God. The question is, can the will desire the good or will the will inevitably desire the bad? So we'll begin by looking at, uh, in, in a sense, this is, we've framed this as a comp competing ideas between St. Augustine, um, complex character, we'll talk about him in a moment, and his legacy. Uh, that grew, I suppose, with an increasingly dark view of the will, and the contrast with Nicholas of Cusa. Now, Nicholas is not technically, of course, a patristic because he lived; he was born in 1401. But this extraordinary book, *The Vision of God*, offers a completely contrasting view, and that's what we're going to David uh, talk to David about. He knows far more about both of those views than we do, or I do. Certainly, it's a good thing about. Me asking questions, David, as I don't have to have all the answers. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you feeling today, David? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm well. How are you? 
Pretty good. I enjoyed last night. Thank you very much. Yeah. Can we give David a round of applause and welcome. Yeah. St. Augustine, complex character. Could you give us a snapshot of possibly his journey? Because, I mean, he, he possibly lived too long. That's your view. But um, with his developing view of human sinfulness, original sin, because there isn't one view that, uh, there isn't one St. Augustine view on those matters, I gather. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he is the most complex, fascinating, and infuriating figure in, in Christian history, I, I often think. He, he was a towering genius, he simply was. He, he uh, created whole genres, not only of, of literature, but of, th of thought. I mean, there's nothing, like, The City of God is a late work, so it's already... So let's say contaminated by that, 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 that darker view, but no one before had ever thought in these terms, had ever, had, had ever constructed a kind of genealogy of culture according to the structures of desire and, uh, you know, at the threshold between uh, imminent and transcendent ends, and it was simple, and with a subtlety that no, I mean, just no one. So the one thing one can't say about Augustine is, oh, he was a fool, or he was simple-minded about this, or he thought in crude categories. He was also a person, though, I mean, I, I think even when you read the Confessions, you realize that there's a certain kind of, um, well, I don't want to say psychopathology, so I'll say psychopathology, uh, there, in that, in that he had a, an extraordinary capacity for a sense of his own unworthiness and his guilt, and today, where we're somewhat more lenient in our psychologization of our motives and the motives of others, we couldn't agonize, as he did, over the memory of stealing a pair when he was a boy. But for him, it, it, it was indicative of, of the corruption of the will at a very deep level uh, that... Uh, Though the pair itself was good, I mean, he believed that you could only ultimately desire the good. You could do it in such a distorted way that you could uh, long for the good under the form simply of the excitement of stealing something that's not yours. And for him, this, you know, and and it was a very, it's a very, it's very, it's a very acute reflection on the kind of uh, mixed motives with which we conduct ourselves in every sphere. But this becomes more and more pronounced as the years go along uh, in his debates with the Pelagians and especially Julian of Eclanum, uh, because more and more he, he felt, and part of this is, is an, I have to say, to a greater degree than most people want to acknowledge, an issue of translation. I mean, the, the words in which he thought, the Latin words in which he thought and read scripture, he, he never really mastered Greek. Late in life, he could read it a bit. So, I mean, for instance, uh, he, was, he was in the habit of thinking of sin, not just as uh, debitum, but as culpa, real guilt. And that's not really a word that you find in the Greek New Testament. I mean, uh, uh, you know, speaks of our, our debts, our ophilimata and transgressions, but the notion of guilt and inherited guilt is, is, is not really prominent because the legal metaphors that Paul uses have to do with civil law, and they all have to do with the laws for manumitting slaves, for the most part. You know, things we call ransom in our translations actually for Paul would mean just the manumission fee you were obliged to pay to buy someone out of slavery by law. Um, so part of it's translation, but part of it is more and more this sense that there had to be an opposition between grace and nature for grace really to be gracious. What grace gives you more and more he became convinced because, again, he was painting himself rhetorically into a corner in his struggles with the Pelagians who were said to, you know, teach the free will is capable of earning God's wrath or mercy. More and more, uh, in order to assure that grace, 
not, not uh, that the gratuity of grace be preserved against any possible dilution of uh, he, that, that one must say that it's almost opposed to what nature is capable of, opposed to what nature merits. And this set the pattern for much of Western theology. We are born guilty, not just in a state of sin. I mean, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Fathers would say, yes, we're born in a servitude, bondage to death, corruption. But they talk about it as a kind of weakness or sickness or an inherited, um, uh, an inherited condition of, of, of disease. Um, and part of it also, of course, again, translation. I mean, sosteni. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the verb that becomes salvation. And this is true in Latin, too, but it was just more, it was more obvious in Greek. It has as its root meaning uh, being healed, being made whole, being made hail, not, uh, not just uh, uh, rescued, but restored to your natural condition. Well, while we're just talking about that, oh, David, I'm going on and on. Yes, oh, no, that, right. sorry about that, David. Uh, in our conversations, when when you weren't watching the baseball, um, which I know is very, are, are the Orioles playing at the moment? Orioles are ahead two to nothing in the. Okay, for, the, for those of you who are worried, <laughs> in the second inning, yeah. go, go on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Thanks for reminding me. That's though. okay. <laughs> um, I want to keep your mind on the job. And you made a, a telling comment when we were discussing just the word sin. And you actually said that were you to do a third edition of your translation of the New Testament, you would consider not using S-I-N to translate the Greek. Yeah. Well, because I think the word has become, for us, is loaded with the connotation of uh, just guilt, uh, first and foremost. And there is some, I mean, there is culpability, there is responsibility for your actions, obviously, in the New Testament. But the, but the word amartia really means, it has a, it has a weaker sense, error, missing the mark, not, you know, being, so there's errancy as much as there is culpability. Sin for us, I think sin for us simply means something. We think we understand what the term means, and as a result, I think it obscures the, the kind of arguments that are made in, in Paul's epistles and elsewhere, and about the relationship between sin and law, sin and grace, sin and, and, and uh, incorporation into, into Christ. So I know, I, I'm not sure what I would use uh, in its place, uh, maybe errancy. Uh, I'd have to think about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, just to summarize what, I, what you told us about St. Augustine, I mean, it, he did live a very long life and he wrote a great deal. Um, people even talk about the early Augustine and the later Augustine as if they're almost two different authors. Well, actually, almost three, really. The, the very early of the soliloquies, then the great golden period of, of the confessions and De Trinitate and things like that. And then the late Augustine, who's concerned with grace and guilt of De Corruptione and all the, and finally the retractions. So, yeah, he. He goes through three distinct periods. Yes, in which De Trinitate, it always feels to me kind of the purest of works. I don't know. What do you think about that? De Trinitate? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's a work. It's just a, a work of genius. Uh, one of the, again, thinking at a level and a depth that was just almost unprecedented in his yep. time with a subtlety and again and again finding different analogies for the Trinity that have this splendid way not only of illuminating what he's talking about so that you don't mistake it for, you know, a confederation of three individuals getting together and deciding to be God, but also that it then casts a light out, okay, it make, because it illuminates the things that he makes analogies from, like the structure of the mind, you know. So, yeah, I, 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 th I, I, I put it with the greatest of Plato's dialogues, for instance, in, in the history of Western thought. Mm. But, unfortunately, and this does happen to all of us as we get older, we can get crankier. And he was, uh, I mean, Bukakov, Bukakov, in his wonderful essay on St. Augustine, makes the comment that 
Augustine was polemical and tended to develop his ideas in, as you said, in a debate, and they, that almost made him exaggerate his ideas. We all tend to do that. That was one point you made. And the other point you made was really he was, as great as he was, struggling with a, what you, whatever you want to call it, a pathology and obsession with okay. guilt and unworthiness. There was a morbidity of temper in him that's there from the beginning. Uh, I should point out that for nine or ten years before he became a Christian, he was a Manichaean, which is a totally dualistic picture of reality. There really is an, uh, a principle of good and a principle of evil at war with one another. And, and so, I mean, that's an extremely dark system of thought, even though it has a happy ending. But, uh, Would I be wrong to see the... Uh, vestiges of that even in the city of God, which is a fairly... No, I think you would be right. Uh, it, uh, lovers of Augustine get angry when you make this suggestion sometimes. I think it's clear that that dualism never totally uh, released its grip on his imagination. Yes. So, the city the of God, you know, just so what he means, the city of God and the earthly city are posed over against one another so starkly at times in that work, that it does amount almost to a cosmic dualism. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, but the other point you made, which I, I think is a real uh, legacy of his, is this sense that in order to maximize the sense of God's grace, I have to maximize the sense of my unworthiness. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bulgakov once, um, Man, you said also in passing, it's not what I just said in passing, that it was a curious thing to him that between the Eastern and Western traditions, and he was living in Paris at the time, I mean, because of course after the revolution he was not, life in Russia wasn't that great for priests. and was a, um, uh, he, uh, he, he, he was in constant conversation with Thomists, and the Thomists of France at that time were what are called manualist Thomas, so they're very Augustinian in many of their premises. And he just remarked to one of them um, that to him it was a curious thing that in the Eastern tradition, in order to uh, in order to cast light upon the the, the, gra the graciousness of grace, the Eastern Fathers would emphasize the, that it was the fulfillment of nature. That, that, that it was in perfect continuity with the nature of the creature and that, and, that, and that the nature of creation was always from the first oriented to grace. Whereas in the West, in order to affirm the gratuity of grace, just the opposite came to be. The, and this was especially true of the Thomists he was arguing with. There's a very special tradition there that uh, grace and nature somehow had to be absolutely discontinuous and almost opposed principles. Uh, and we're not going to focus on Bukharkov, but I think for most people here, um, they probably don't know who he is. Could you just give us a, just a quick uh, touch of a, who he was, why you think he's so important, how his reputation's rising these days? Yeah, he was, um, uh, well, he came from a very prominent family that included some very famous bishops and also uh, one of his distant cousins was the great novelist Mikhail Bulgakov as a master in Margarita. The Bulgakovs uh, were a very educated family but he in his youth was a you know, Marxist economic philosopher, one of the great economic philosophers actually of, of ever if you read his early uh, books on uh, philosophy of economy. Um, but he was always interested in questions of faith and religion. And he had, uh, what really turned his life in the direction it would take was the death of his son, uh, what, what, the death of one of his son. And at the funeral, which was a church funeral, he had a, a mystical experience of his son in the, transfigured in the glory of Christ, which he believed was a real it wasn't just a psychological uh, episode. It really was a gift. He had really been granted a knowledge uh, that that turned his life. And so thereafter, uh, the, and what happened there also is um, he produced, to my mind, uh, the most brilliant body of theological work since 
Maximus the Confessor. There's not a single figure with the possible exceptions of Nicholas of Cusa. Uh, I think I would put, I, I would say produced so much, such rich theological work in, in for the better part of Christian history, uh, mostly because he had two great virtues. One was he was unafraid of ecclesial authority. I mean, he didn't mind criticizing the, the traditional theology, even the church. He would even criticize the church fathers, which in the Eastern Christian world is something you very rarely dare to do. It's like criticizing God. You're supposed to think the church fathers all agreed on everything and were right about everything, whereas he was ha quite happy to treat them as theologians. You would learn from them, but you could debate them. Uh, the other thing is he just had the most incredibly rigorous mind. He, uh, he would uh, write in the sort of rich, rhapsodic, Silver Age Russian style, but when you follow the argumentation, uh, it was peerless in, his, in its consistency and rigor and depth. So yes, he, uh, to my mind, just uh, towers over the rest of theological literature in the modern age. And now becoming much more translated into English. Yeah, for, for years people had a very limited notion of him. They knew he was something called a sociologist, and they, they kind of thought they knew what this meant. There's a, he must think that there's a fourth hypostasis in the Godhead that's, a, that's named Sophia. You know, they had these very... And only two or three of his books had been translated at that part, and most people in the West don't read Russian, right? Now... Uh, over the past 20 years, uh, I, I like to think in part through the, uh, the, uh, the encouragement of a lot of people I know, friends of mine, myself too, something like 25 of his, his major books have now been brought into English and it started something of a, a Bulgakov movement in the Anglophone theological world that's very much changed the conversation on a lot of things. Uh, he's, he's, he's actually now the cutting edge of a lot of Anglophone theology. And just to finish with St. Augustine, of course, his influence on the reform movement very directly to Luther and Calvin, he was their major influence. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, all, um, all the theology of the 16th century with, with and 17th century with only a a few exceptions is just late Augustine. And it's not just the Protestants, it's not just, it's Catholic thought too. Uh, Jansenism, uh, neo-scholastic Thomism, there was a huge, uh, it was as if the Catholics and Protestants were trying to outdo one another on the ferocity of God. You know, well, <laughs> my God is so gracious that 99% of you are going to hell. You know, well, 99.4, as Thomas would say. So, I mean, it was very much the flavor of the time. And, it, and again, it was a rhetorical, it was, it's interesting, it's a polemical context. Just as Augustine was debating the Pelagians, so it was Catholic and Reformed or Evangelical or Evangelic Christians were trying to outdo one another in extreme formulations of the gratuity of grace. And this creates not just it's again it's not just if, if anyone ever wants to have an experience every bit as horrifying as book three of the institutes uh pick up the catholic thomist uh, garagou lagrange's book on predestination um it's amazing uh it's uh it's it is good rigorous thomist work it's called predestination in english that's not what it was called in the original french but it, this is something of a classic text in that tradition. And basically, it's just the, you know, it, straightforward double predestinarianism just inflected with more subtlety through Thomistic language. So it's not just, not just the reform. I mean, yeah. And uh, of course, this is accumulating uh, indirectly and but massively into an anthropology, a description of what it is to be a human being that. Uh, however you frame it, is fairly, fairly dark. So in contrast, let's move now to a co very contrasting view. Uh, Nicholas of Cusa, um, I first came across his name um, actually in Marislav Volf's book on Islam. Um, 
and uh, where he said, well, Nicholas was unique in his day, the 15th century, 1400s, in having a very uh, erratic, benevolent attitude with the is Islam. He was he, not, he was in discourse with them. Um, that's when I first came across him. But of course, uh, since then, uh, I've begun to read him myself, what you say about him. By the way, the particular book I'd recommend is this one, The Vision of God. That'd be a good starting one. Yeah, uh, uh, it's also known as On the Icon or On the True Image, they're di different. I've never seen that edition before, so I don't know which translation it is, but yeah, that's a little... Yeah, and it's, 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 it's accessible, I mean, it's succinct. But can you give us a bit of background on Nicholas? Most of us here would not be familiar with him. Can you give us a just... Well, I mean, he's, uh, he represents... Um, I mean, as you may know, the other... The, uh, as the reform was taking root in the 16th century, it's also the period of the Italian Renaissance and the, the um, revival of Platonism in the West as a result of contact with the collapsing Byzantine Empire, right? More and more through Venice and Palermo and through the Council of Florence, what was going, of course, as many of you know, in 1453, Constantinople fell and the, and the Roman Empire came to its final end. But that met, led to a huge migration of texts and, and such westward. So there was a, 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 a there was a, a Platonic, but also a Christian, Eastern Christian, Neoplatonic uh, Renaissance in in Florence and elsewhere. And part of that, the Council of Florence, which was an attempt to unite East and West, to which the Eastern Church came because. They needed military assistance, to be honest, against the Ottomans. It was actually Nicholas of Cusa, who, who was this prominent clergyman in Germany, Cues, uh, what you know, Cusa being the, the Latin for Cues. Uh, um, he, uh, he actually was the one who sailed, who led the delegation to Constantinople that brought back uh, such figures to the council as Bizarian and George Comistus Plethon and other great scholars. And they, in time, would bring their libraries with them. For instance, Bizarian became a, he didn't go back to the captive Byzantine world. He became a cardinal and had his whole library given to the, to the Venetian Senate. Okay, so, but with Nicholas, he also, on the ship back from Constantinople, again, had a vision, it was sort of like Bulgakov, in which he saw, in which he realized that everything that exists to a radical, in a, in a radical way that he hadn't formerly conceived exists within God, in, in both its existence and its essence. Um, in God, and of course, the perfect plenitude and simplicity, and in us, uh, what he would call unfoldings of that which is enfolded in God. So he basically had a radical vision of the indistinction between the natural and the gracious. And, you know, we don't know if this is because of the conversations he was having with Eastern Christians or not or if it's just a coincidence, it would be a strange coincidence. But whatever, he's a, he, he, you will not find in his work after that. And that's, of course, what he began really writing. The first work after that is called On Learned Ignorance, De Docta Ignorantia, in which he, you know, talk, he, he introduced all sorts of new terms into the theological vocabulary at the time, like the coincidentia oppositorum, as being a definition of God, a coincidence of opposites, and explaining how this becomes an ontology in which things that differ here below, say like Christianity and Islam, can be understood as not as in their uh, non-differentiation in in their final ends in God. And he and his theology thereafter. It, I mean, I, again, I think he's the, I think he's just a, a towering. And really the most brilliant Christian mind of the 15th century and for many centuries, you're not going to find a discourse of sin as inherited guilt. Nowhere is nature posed over against grace. He never presumes that an opposition between them, for him, 
It's the integrity of them. It, in a sense, nature and grace are one and the same thing as seen from different ends, from the creaturely or divine vantage. So it's a, you know, nature all the way up, grace all the way down. Yeah, and he, so we'll finish off by digging a bit deeper in some, some of his views, just to give people a taste of them, because you, you know, at, at, it could sound superficially like he's just got an optimistic view of human nature, but it's, it's not like that at all. It's extremely sophisticated. But just to give people a taste of it, it's his view of the will, and I've just got a single sentence here, um, David, that where he's saying that every single person only ever seeks the good, and the good is God. Um, uh, um, so the sentence is, all seekers seek only the good. And every seeker after the good who withdraws from you withdraws from what he is seeking. Could you just, yeah, just quick, I mean, can you just comment on that? His view that we are all desiring the good. I mean, on the one, I mean, in one sense, this was just the common affirmation. Even Augustine would tell you that. It's the degree of corruption separating us from that end. For Nicholas, if we were so corrupt that that end were not already implicit in all of our motives, then we could have no rational existence at all, right? So for him, every desire for a finite end is sustained by a premise one and could not exist but for a prior desire for an infinite good. So that even our natural, and, and it's, obviously we can't go into the analysis of that, though he argues it brilliantly. In, uh, he doesn't use the word intention, he uses the word attention, which includes in both intention and something. But anyway, um, that uh, what that means is even the most ordinary impulses of the will and mind have to be understood within light of a prior predisposition of grace to deification, to union with God, and that therefore, if we, put, if we create a partition between the gracious gift of deification, which in Thomas' tradition, the, the next century will come to me, something that has no continuity with your nature. It's pure super addition. Uh, then our nature is inexplicable. It's just, uh, you know, again, he takes the notion that the breath of God makes us living souls, the spirit of God within us, the image of God within us is our nature, the foundation of our nature, which can have no end but union with God in the divine nature. And I love his, uh, no need to go into this in detail, but the tree, uh, uh, chapter seven, I turn my mind to the nut tree, a big tall tree, and seek to perceive its principle. And off he goes on the tree, and he's ending up finding God behind right. the tree. The desire to know the principle of a tree can only reach its satiation in the knowledge of God, uh, uh, because it's that search for the knowledge of God which makes it possible to desire to know a tree. Yes, and I actually like his word attention rather than intention, because when you discuss this, you make the point that, I mean, attention's interesting, so we are paying attention all the time, we're noticing things, which, but that combines probably two things that he develops so one is some degree of intentionality but the other is perception that there's a right. cognitive ordering that we're yeah, doing he, all the he's time. He's sort of the first phenomenologist you know he's Edmund Husserl's great-great-great-grandfather uh, so to speak. Yeah yeah, yeah. Um, sophisticated grasp of cognition uh, but the, the one that intrigued me most is his view of what we call infinity. Now I'm used to the term infinity as some kind of merely numerical quantitative thing, you know, Einstein, but, but what you write, this intriguing statement about his significance in the history of Western metaphysics, you said he was unique in that he, for him infinity was not merely a name for interminable extension, so it wasn't just like long, long time, rather, Infinity is also a proper name 
for the necessary end of all rational freedom. So infinity is not just some thing of physics, it's actually got a moral quality to do with the character of God. Could you unpack that a little bit, his view of infinity? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if I don't think I said he was unique. Did I? Uh, you said you said he was because uh, Gregory of Nyssa also. Yeah, yeah you you uh, said he was picking up on Gregory. Say, yeah, right. Um, just want to make sure I didn't misstate it because it's possible I write very fast and it's like, oh dear, I, I, I read very fast too. Um. So yeah. Um, well, he actually says at one point that we're you know we're God not infinite. It could not. The, the satis he could not satisfy our natural desire. So for him, a rational desire always naturally longs for the infinite. If, if we don't, you know, that even, even God would be insufficient for us if he were just a being among beings, you know. For, for um, Nicholas also, the, the way one is to understand the infinite is also infinite simplicity in which all possible actuality is enfolded in virtual fullness, and then it unfolds itself, first, I mean, in the Trinitarian life, but also unfolds itself in creation. So that all of creation is what he, what he calls the explicatio, the unfolding, the, of that which is an implicatio, an, inf, an unfolding in God. So the, the infinite there is the infinite fullness of all that might be and all that might be known. And it is, even though if we're not conscious of it in every moment of, of action and thought, if we try to make, uh, well, I spoke last night of infinite regresses, but this is a good infinite regress, a benign one. If we try to make sense of why we desire anything that we desire, we can always find a more eminent or a higher or a more abstract or more general premise until finally we realize that the very structure of rational thought and desire always already assumes an infinite appetite for the infinite fullness of reality. And I mean, that's what he means by the infinity of Yes, God. and Not parts of St. Augustine say the same thing. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and, and that's the curious. Oh yeah, I mean, Nicholas loved Augustine, but he never quotes him after, from after a certain period. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Uh, this can sound, I mean, I guess when, yeah, at, at, at first blush, it could sound like very philosophical, but what strikes me, and it's even obvious in what you've said about Bukakov, but this was very personal for, I mean, the vision of God is a, a devotional work to do. Yeah. And, yeah. It oh, actually yeah. is very personal. And, and it's all about meditation on a Byzantine icon that had been sent as a gift that, uh, in which uncannily the face of Christ, you know, no matter what direction you looked at it from, was one of those well-painted, it seemed to be looking at you. And this becomes a meditation on how seeking the face of God is how God actually also sees us. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And... Um, but he, and he also has this lovely personalizing um, image or conceptual category of faces and 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 gods as uh, the face of all faces, uh, which is a, a, a beautiful thought. Um, now he goes further. He, so, so essentially, let's just summarize. Um, we can find exactly the same thoughts in Augustine, but Augustine didn't develop them. Um, uh, you'd, you would argue that, uh, that polemics distracted him and, and he got a distorted view. Nicholas took those views and built a whole theological vision out of them. And so, so he would say to any human being, he would have us say to any human being, think, I mean, I. I I don't know if this is the right thing. I just keep thinking of Bruce Springsteen. Everybody's got a hungry, hungry heart, and the hungry heart is a is a desire for God. Uh, it's a desire for God. you might people would not name it that way, um, so, but it's within us that we are all reaching out beyond any intermediate object of desire to what's behind it, behind the tree to you know the love of beauty. That so, however. So that's a summary, I guess, of this wonderful view of the will. But he goes further, um, which is uh, apprehension, not just desire. Summarising it as I see it, he's saying 
God would not create in us a desire for something, you know, like God's not in the game of frustration, uh, creating a for us desire that we can never achieve. Could you comment on that sense of well, apprehension? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, he, uh, he takes it for granted that um, what sin is, is simply the thwarting of what our nature would seek and could seek uh, to achieve. Uh, and that, in fact, our natural end and our gracious end are one and the same. So that there's not. This is a curious thing. This is this is precisely what became a point of dispute in the next century with the Thomists, is because they wanted to affirm that most people go to hell forever. I mean, this is the real reason, and that that makes grace all the more precious for those who who get into the gated community. Um, that uh, that they had to say, well, but God would be unjust if human nature could only be fulfilled, could be fulfilled only in the vision of the divine nature. Therefore, it must be possible that you could have a rational nature, that it could exist in a state of pure nature without any grace at all and be totally satisfied because God doesn't owe you anything. He did not... He, he, so whatever appetites, you know, if you have an appetite for the knowledge of God, that itself is a gift of grace from outside your nature that's been implanted in you by the super addition of something called the Lumen Gloriae. So if, I, if anyone does desire the good, it's a, it's a predestined gift right. of God. It's an extrinsic gift, so you can't, you can't lay any claim on God as a result of that. He did not give you a nature that desires more than a natural end. Now the problem is, is Nicholas and others have already exposed this as making no sense because all human natural desire for human natural is as possible as rational desires only by virtue of a prior desire for a divine end. So just at the level of phenomenology, this would have made no sense. But it was also for, it would be utterly contrary to how Nicholas and really at least the whole Eastern tradition, and frankly most of the whole Western tradition to that point had seen the matter, which was that the image of God within us is a real natural disposition to long for God. Um, and therefore, you know, Nicholas sees quite correctly that, that any artificial distinction between the gifts of grace and the gifts of nature is an entirely uh, contradictory f formal claim. And, and they, and uh, I think you in your gods make the point that this is really the, becomes an eschatological vision which Paul referred to and John, when we shall see face to face, we shall yeah. know as we are known. Right. Yeah. But I mean, again, just the point to make, the, I, I, we've made, a, probably made it ad nauseum. For the whole, for the patristic tradition, for most of Christian tradition, that means that that seeing face to face and knowing even as I am known is the proper end of our natures. What happens in the 16th century in a very sophisticated philosophical language for the Thomists, but in a different kind of language for the Reformers, is that's no longer a given. Um, grace has become so mysteriously extrinsic to our nature that even saying we're in the image of God doesn't mean anything much other than there's a kind of paradigm, a divine paradigm for rational beings. So um, Nicholas's view of sin would say a drug dealer is desiring the good, they're just distorted in how they think they're going to get it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the distortion can be very great indeed. You can become fixated by way of cruelty, you know, but, but ultimately your desire, if even only in the trivial sense of that which is good for me, that which gives me pleasure, in a different system, the Skoda system, this is the dif difference between the uh, desire for that which is commodious and that which is just. And you can go either path in the search of, uh, for, for truth, for the search for the good. But in either case, the prior desire for the good is what motivates you to desire anything at all. So, 
So we, uh, in evangelising, as it were, rather than opening with, let me tell you about yourself and all of mankind, you're a sinner and no good thing dwells within you, uh, we would say, let me tell you about yourself, um, you're made in the image of God, every desire you have is actually at heart a desire for the good and for God. You may well be taking wrong pathways to that, you may well be ignorant of it, but in you loving others and in you loving that tree and in you loving music, you don't know it, but you're reaching for the good and the good is God, which St. Augustine would have said the same thing, I think, in Day Tree. Yeah, it? yeah, he would have. So you could rename uh, for any human being a experience of God that's latent and there already. It might be unfulfilled. Well, um, I think that's fairly illuminating and clear sort of story. I like, David, I think what you help us so much with is not just the nuances, but the context and history where these, as it were, competing visions by two very great men, Nicholas and two men who both loved God, no question of that, um, but came to, in the end, fairly different conclusions from fairly similar beginnings. And um, so we're going to take a short break now. Um, you, you, you conclude with Nicholas's views that they leave uh, no space uh, at all for what you call the partition of the cosmos into the supernatural and the natural, and that's what we're going to talk about in the next module. So we're going to take a break for about five minutes or so. It's not our morning tea break. We just want to give uh, you a chance to stretch your legs and David a chance to drink water and check the baseball scores.